You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. What are the top three brands in the world from a brand value perspective? Ooh. I mean, there's so many different ways you could slice this revenue, value, goodwill. I'm talking about the brand value, the monetary dollar amount that they're worth. If you take all their shareholders, their stock, their cash, you throw it together, top three brands. Just the value of the brand. I would say probably Coke, Apple, and Amazon. Close, but no cigar. Apple is valued at $241 billion with a 70% year change from last. Google, 207, and Microsoft, 162 billion. Mm, okay. Coca-Cola is number six at 64 billion. Amazon, number four at 135 billion. And Disney, Samsung, Louis Vuitton at number nine, and the McDonald's at 10. Big brands, mega brands. Mm. So we were kind of close in the top five to six-ish generally. Yeah. And when you think of like legacy brands, brands that everybody loves, there are huge brands like you mentioned Coca-Cola, Amazon, Nike, that everybody knows, but not everybody loves. Right. And then there are brands that are universally loved that it seems nobody ever could dislike. And then there are brands that are beneficial, that educate or improve, mm. being one of those brands that basically does it all, is liked by everybody and provides an actual benefit. And that's like the holy grail of brands. And let's call these brands mega brands. And today we're gonna be unpacking a really cool story about one of these mega brands. And that is Lego. Ah, I love Lego. Think? <laughs> There we go. Yeah. Everybody loves Lego. But before we do, this is episode 21. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to my screen. Yes, again. Like we're still recording remotely. Yeah. Good to see you, even if it's only over a Zoom meeting. It has been a while. Yeah. We haven't seen each other since March. Yes. Yeesh. It's crazy. And it's quite funny. Our agency has been virtual for six years since we started it six years ago. I remember when we started, we would talk to clients about it, that we 100% remote or virtual. And it was like, wow, that's crazy. How do you guys manage to do work? And now everybody's moving to virtual. I read a really cool article yesterday in the New York Times about now that you are not office bound anymore, a lot of people are questioning where they live, which makes total sense, right? Because you usually move to a location based on work, but if that's not right. necessary anymore. <laughs> so there might be a massive migration that's gonna happen in the US. A lot of people would move out of high property tax areas to Nebraska. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a little evening out of the population <laughs> distribution. <laughs> yeah, we've talked about that too. Maybe moving to something a little bit more. A little more land. Definitely more land, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not living in a shoebox in Southern California. Yes. But I can't take the weather with me, unfortunately. That's a problem. <laughs> that, that is the problem. Yep. So yeah, let's talk about Lego. Everybody knows Lego and everybody likes Lego, but it's a, before we started researching this, I just assumed that they've always been doing really good. I didn't know that they had a massive calculated comeback. Yeah. 
which is a super interesting story. Yeah, this is definitely one of the cool comeback stories that we'll cover on this show. You know, we've covered some pretty amazing ones, and this is right up with them. Which has been your favorite, by the way. Ooh. I really enjoyed the Coke comeback. It was really interesting. Yeah, I think the entire story around, I think it was episode three with Coke was just so interesting and so entertaining the way that the executives handled things. They did it with a little bit of flair and flourish. And that was like super cool. Yeah, absolutely. But this is a cool one too. So let's dive into the history of Lego itself. So the Lego group is a Danish company that was founded in 1932 by the Kirk Christensen family. And it's still owned by the family. It's a family-owned company. That's amazing. <laughs> yes, that they've been able to keep it private this long is really cool. So today it seems like Lego has always been, like we talked about, this mega brand, just unassailable. Everybody loves Legos. One of those brands that almost doesn't even, you'd think, need to advertise. They just, they're a cultural installation and they just do what they do perfectly Everyone reveres them, but a lot of people didn't know that Lego hasn't always been what it is today. So even as recently as 2004, not even 20 years ago, the Lego company was in some pretty serious trouble. So let's actually kind of like go back to the beginning and kind of see how this develops to understand the story. Yes, the Lego group started humbly in a workshop of a Danish carpenter named Oli Kirk Christensen, who lived in 1891 to 1958. And Christensen started building wooden toys in Bulland, Denmark in 1932. And in 1934, he named the company Lego, which comes from the Danish phrase, leg got, which means play well. And in 1947, Lego started making plastic toys, including, in 1949, plastic building blocks that they originally called automated binding blocks. And I actually want to play an ad of a commercial in 1955, which is really cool. Let's listen to that quickly. Lego is here. Hey, kids, look. A whole new world to build. Because Lego is here. This young boy has such fun. We use Lego one by one. Wiggle it, nap, patty, whack, don't double plane. This young boy glad Lego came. Lego, a whole new world to build. That's really, really cute. And there's actually a playlist on YouTube that shows all the ads from 1955 to present. So you can look at the progression. And we'll throw that in the show notes so you can look at it. But the motto of the company was only the best is good enough. And in Danish, de beste er ikke for good. Mm. Christensen believed that quality was paramount and he held his employees to the highest of standards. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting. Sentiment against plastic toys was actually hard to overcome in Denmark. They valued kind of more substantial materials, custom woodworking and things that they felt were more like quality materials. But the Lego company's attention to quality with their plastics really won people over. And by 1951, plastic toys made up half of the company's production. 
And in January of 1958, Lego patented their design and the modern Lego brick was born. So let's talk about the growth of the modern Lego company. From the time it was founded in 1932 and for 66 years, the Lego group had never posted a loss So very successful over a long period of time. And then in the 90s, things kind of start to shift. So let's actually listen to an ad from 1990. Lego Castle Collection. Each set sold separately from Lego. (laughs) Yeah, I remember those Lego Maniac sets. (laughs) And even I had the one with the little ghost in this commercial. Little glow-in-the-dark ghost thing. Oh, man. Those are cool. I loved those. (laughs) A lot of castles and stuff like that. It was fun. But competition really starts to intensify and Lego has to cut prices to remain competitive. You start seeing a lot of generic Lego competitors coming into the market that try to make their pieces even interchangeable with Lego pieces. Mm. Even if you already have a fairly extensive Lego connection, they can kind of chip away by having kind of like interoperability and compatibility with existing Lego sets. So the market gets tougher and consumer tastes seem to be moving away from Lego at the time to other flashier toys and games and gadgets. There was a lot of kind of toy innovation that was going on. This was also like during the proliferation period of comic books. Batman toys are really like taking off and Transformers and Hot Wheels. And there's all these different options, a significantly higher number of options. And that kind of continues to chip away at Lego. And so consultants advise them to diversify, right? Like the industry is diversifying, you need to diversify and drive growth in other areas. And at least at the time, they believed one of their main competitors was Mattel because Mattel had a really big share within just the overall toy market. And they had products from Barbie to Hot Wheels, a lineup with a lot of breadth. And so Lego starts to think, ooh, maybe we should try to be a little bit more like Mattel. Yeah, so they attempted to diversify their products to keep up with Mattel. And they launched a clothing line. They made jewelry for kids. They started a theme park. There's one around the corner from us here in SoCal. And they got into video games. But this was a massive shift away from the original blocks and seemed to actually hurt them more than helping them. Rather than leaning into their historical equity, like what Polaroid did, Lego hired designers out of the top cottages who didn't care about the brand. And they designed overly complex kits that didn't tie up with the Lego equity, with parts that couldn't be used interchangeably. Many of the parts they had to outsource for those kids were more expensive than the actual kids sold for. So they were running <laughs> at a loss, yeah. which makes no sense. And there were no internal processes to check or stop this from happening. Yeah. So in 1998, the company faces its first deficit. 
In 1999, Lego cuts a thousand jobs. By 2003, their sales had fallen 26% and pre-tax earnings fell by over 1.4 billion Danish crowns, which is equivalent to about 200 million US dollars at the time. And an internal report at the time stated that Lego hadn't added anything of value to its portfolio in over a decade. This story about this internal report is actually like pretty amazing. It was done by a McKinsey consultant, Jorgen Vig Knudstorp. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Oh boy, is it ever. So this internal report by Jorgen Vig Knudstorp, (laughs) he describes when he was putting the report together that he was walking in and giving such an unpopular opinion that he called his wife on the way out of the meeting of presenting the report and telling her his career was over and he probably wasn't going to have a job the next day. This is my last day. This is my last day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty amazing story. But the executive team was really like shocked by what was in that report that there hadn't been anything of value added to its portfolio in over a decade because they'd been prolifically doing acquisitions and diversification initiatives. And the numbers bore out exactly what Jorgen was talking about in that report. Year over year sales were down 30% and the company was 800 million in debt. So Lego was facing essentially now the most serious financial crisis in its history and was in completely uncharted territory. And what's interesting here as well, it's like very often we see this happening as part of the more of the geopolitical economy, you know, the 2008 crash, right? Great Depression, so on. This was done in isolation. This was just done by the actual company themselves versus any other global economical influences which I think is interesting to note. Exactly. At this time, the economy was roaring, things generally going pretty good. And looking at Lego's ventures during these down years, it can kind of be a little bit difficult at first glance to see why they were floundering because they were being innovative. They were responding to competitive pressures. And Some of Lego's most memorable ventures happened during that time, including the start of some of their big licensing deals with franchises like Star Wars, which has been a big piece of Lego for a long time, and Harry Potter. But the fact was that Lego couldn't really exist on these kind of sporadic wins that didn't really have as much to do with their core business of why kids love Legos in the first place and what makes them really enjoy spending time and hours and using their imaginations to create and to build. Yeah, and also from a business standpoint, it wasn't set up correctly. The successful Star Wars packaging here and there wasn't enough to bring the business back. And the licensing expenses involved in using both Star Wars and Harry Potter brands ate completely into the revenue that they generated. Mm. Even if the lines themselves were popular, they weren't making any money from it. Sounds a little bit like the Marvel episode that we did. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Where licensing became more of a problem than a help. Yeah. Lego wasn't Mattel. They needed a solid long-term strategy and diversification was not it. It wasn't paying off. They needed to shake things up. And that's such an important point to realize that you can constantly chase competitors 
or you can think about yourself. You can think about who you are and how to be the best version of yourself. And that's the thing that's going to really allow you to compete at a much higher level versus just trying to copy what your competitors are doing. So they were at this turning point. So as companies often do in a time of crisis, they look to the leadership as they should. You've got to really evaluate, okay, we're here because we've taken a particular path that's been set forward by the leadership. So we need to make a change. And so in 2004, Lego hires Jorgen Vig Knudstorp as the CEO, this young guy, 35 years old, never been a CEO of a major company before. He was the consultant that wrote that report that kind of jarred them into realizing, ooh, something really is wrong here. And so they hire him as the CEO and they embark on a company-wide restructuring plan. So step one, of course, is kind of get costs in control. The goal at the very beginning was to become a financially well-founded value-creating business. And Jorgen talks about the fact that for the first two years, they knew that the previous strategy was wrong, but they didn't know what the right strategy was. And so he said, for the first two years, we didn't have a strategic plan. We purposefully didn't have a strategy. We had an action plan. And by executing that action plan of these are the things that we just simply need to do in order to restore faith in ourselves and in our ability to deliver, the strategy then revealed itself through simply kind of taking the actions that they felt were the right actions, even though they weren't clear on what the long-term strategy was yet. Yeah, that's so important of having a very clear, simple objective that everything evolves around right? versus having this canned strategy that gets applied on a business trying to save it. You know what I mean? Right. I think the fact that they took their time to figure out what their strategy is and, and gave themselves time to do that is really smart. Yeah. He said that with him, he's kind of like a, a very cerebral type of person. So he thinks a lot. And so he said at this point in time, he had to kind of retrain himself into thinking about trying to have this complex strategy was exactly what got Lego into trouble is they put all these complex strategies in place, but they weren't doing the simple things, the simple actions. He kind of equates it to New Year's resolutions. We come up with all these resolutions and think that the insight is I need to lose weight, but that's not actually the real insight that leads to action. It's the actions that then it's, I'm going to put 15 minutes a day on my calendar of running or whatever else and building those action plans and the processes in place, that's what actually drives results, not the kind of fluffy stuff. So Lego starts to revisit their history and they make a decision to get back to the core of the company, to Ollie Kirk's original values and products. So Knut Stroop hit the ground running and he made some hard decisions. And by the way, he was the first non-family CEO that's ever managed the company. Wow. 35-year-old. So he reorganized the company. He did an analysis of all costs and he focused on what they were good at and not how to just diversify their portfolio because it just was not working up until this point. 
They link design to manufacturing costs. They shut down the video game industry. They got rid of the theme park business. The Legoland parks are now owned by, or was owned by a British company. I think initially they had 30% shares in the business. And in 2019, they acquired another 20%. And I think part of their strategic plan is to take full ownership of it again. Yep. And they refocused the business on making construction sets because ultimately that is the thing that carried them for 61 years worth of growth. They cut down the number of parts or the bricks from 13,000 down to 6,000, bringing the cost down to make the kits. And they simplified the colors. So Lego started out with red, yellow, and blue. And when Knott's trip took over, they were... 50 colors so he, he <laughs> cut it back again yeah you can just think the production costs right to make all of them was the sky high yeah and so he puts this mindset to work of focusing on the process on simplicity and bringing the company back to its roots and the importance of having a product that is so high quality that one of the problems with all of these complex kits is you couldn't use them together. You couldn't actually like take the pieces from one kit and build them into something else and new with the pieces from a different kit because they just weren't compatible. That makes no sense, right? Right. That's what Lego is all about is that compatibility. And Lego needed to kind of get back to that ability for kids to really use their imaginations right. with the toys rather than just being able to follow the instructions and build a specific thing. That's what we just did. We literally found like a massive bin of Lego pieces that we bought mm -hmm. from somebody on like Facebook marketplace and it was cheap and it's just a 20 gallon bin full of random pieces <laughs> yes. that the kids can just use to make up their own stuff. Because Legos are expensive. They're very, very pricey. Exactly. So when you buy a set, you want to be able to really use it, right? And use it in as many ways as possible. And so they reconnected with their fans to help them design the future of the company. And we talk a lot about on the podcast of the importance of humility and listening to your customers and not just doing that as lip service and as a function of, oh, we're just going to run a couple of surveys through the marketing department really, truly making your customers a part of your company. And this is maybe one of the most important things that the new CEO did is the first thing that he did after the internal work of cutting the fat was to turn to the fans of the brand for the way forward. So to quote Knudstorp, quote, one of the very impactful ways for me to rediscover our ultimate purpose was talking to super users of the brand and spend days talking to them about it. That's where you learn what you're all about. And that feedback helped me to articulate the direction together with my colleagues for the future innovation of the brand. He brought hardcore fans into the actual product design process. Like we said earlier, they got away from who they were hiring these hotshot designers who didn't know anything about the brand's equity or history. And in 2006, they held their first designer recruitment workshop and Lego designer Mark Stafford was hired during one of these workshops. When attending an AFLCON, which stands for Adult Fans of Lego Convention, Stafford heard about the opportunity. Stafford wrote a great Reddit thread about the company's turnaround and he has a great quote from him. He said, I was one of the 11 designers hired at that time. New managers were placed in the design building. 
all developed inside the company. These guys loved the product. They knew the customers as they had grown up playing with Lego and they had ideas that had been restrained for years. They hired several kid-focused design graduates and a few AFALs, adult fans of Lego, which I was one. Yeah, and they also launched their own crowdsourcing competition. They offered winning designers 1% of the product's net sales, which could be massive. Jeez. And so far, the competition has resulted in sets like Back to the Future, DeLorean, Time Machine, The Beatles, Yellow Submarine, and a set of female NASA scientists. Ooh, cool. Yeah, so Lego rebuilds their company by bringing it back to its core mission. And if you look at any of the videos or articles or anything where the CEO is quoted, he talks a lot about getting back to the core and focusing on the core business and using that as the basis for innovation. They still make new kits, right? They still design new sets and have some licensing agreements and partnerships. But the new kits today are on equity with Lego historically in that they're interchangeable, right? You, all the pieces yeah. and parts, they all work together. They fit together. You can build them into other things and they're cost effective to manufacture because of that. And so they feel like a connected brand. They feel like the Lego of 40 years ago with this little add-on of digital innovation and kind of responding to current trends in pop culture and movies and all of that kind of stuff. You know what? Diversification is not necessarily a bad thing. There are other companies that do that, that very successfully make that the foundation of their comeback. I think what they did right here is to realize that it's not working and to course correct. Yes. We've seen so many stories of CEOs or the executive team that hangs on to a losing strategy, aka American Airlines, yeah. that just continue doubling down on right. their original strategy, where it takes, to your point, a lot of humility to realize that it's been wrong and to try to undo some of the mistakes you've done and course correct. And I think that's a quality of a great leader and that's a quality of a great leadership team to be able to do that. Yeah, and to your point, Jorgen actually talks about that a lot. He says that he had a lot of conversations with employees in the company where he said nine times out of 10, it's stuff that's barely even relevant when he has conversations with employees about what they think should happen or problems that are going on. And he says, but if you don't listen to those nine out of 10 times, that really won't give you much of anything of value. Right. That 10th time where there's a really important truth about your business that you never would have gotten to if you weren't willing to listen to and entertain ideas that aren't necessarily the, the smartest or the best that a lot of people would just shut down as a waste of time. He said you never will get to those really important core truths that will allow you to innovate in the right ways and fix the things that otherwise you wouldn't find out about until it's too late. So let's actually listen to a clip of him talking about how they went through that kind of reinvention process. When you joined, Lego was in you know, a degree of trouble uh, and it had perhaps divested almost to the point of destruction. How do you now, because the brand is back up and running again, it's doing incredibly well, 
which must mean that opportunity after opportunity is coming your way as more and more people again start saying, oh, we could do this with Lego. How do you make sure you don't repeat those mistakes? Exactly. No, but I agree. I think actually it's a golden rule in business that most companies don't die from starvation. They, do, they die from indigestion uh, because there's so much opportunity if you start opening your eyes to it. One of the rules I stick to is you can really on, only build an adjacency to your core business every three to five years because it's such a major undertaking in terms of culture and capabilities. And that's what we did wrong in the past. Rather than doing one adjacency every three to five years, we did three to five adjacencies every year. So I think that's what nearly killed us. The other thing it does, by the way, of course, is that people lose focus on their core business as they pursue these new adjacencies that become the new sexy thing to do. And so for me, you know, a major paradigm shift is the core business is what is the most exciting and what we need to continue to reinvent every year and make sure we build our business on in the future. Oh man, that really rings close to home. That's something that you and I have figured out the hard way of running a business, diversifying in the sake of diversification because it's the right thing to do because we tend to associate or use diversification and innovation interchangeably right which is not the case at all <laughs> right and over the years of us running our agency that's definitely something that we've done a lot of and come back to our core business you know what i mean to exactly what you just said and for whatever reason these business lessons very often you need to experience mm. <laughs> versus yes. just knowing them and trying to avoid them right so it's a really great clip of him. Yeah, and I think he gives a great example in that it looks good on paper, and that's what makes it so challenging. He talks about there really is so much opportunity. It's the right strategy on paper a lot of times, and that's what makes it so difficult to maintain that focus on the core of your business and innovating within the core versus the adjacencies, right? Because it most often looks like the right strategy on paper. And so it just takes an incredible amount of discipline and purposeful focus to make sure that innovation is happening, but it's happening within a specific context and it's happening within a specific kind of core track of what you're really good at and who you really are as a core company. And that approach, that attitude led them back to where they are today, where everything is awesome. Yeah. So over the last decade, they were from the brink of financial catastrophe. Lego, once again, is right on top. In 2015, revenue toppled 35 billion Danish crowns. Lego was number one toy in Europe and Asia, and number three in North America, where profits topped $1 billion for the first time, beating even Apple. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah. In 2016 alone, Lego sold over 75 billion bricks. Mm. And the Lego minifigures, the little people in their kits, now outnumber humans oh. on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That is super, super cool. That is pretty cool, right? Yeah. So, I mean, Lego's enduring popularity is due to its combination of creativity and utility, right? It serves a developmental purpose 
for children of all types and backgrounds. It doesn't matter. You get access to Legos and it completely opens your mind and encourages imaginative play by offering this infinite number of possibilities. It engages creativity, logic, science, art, all of these really important things that are so important for a developing mind. And it gives you multiple pathways. It helps you understand how to follow instructions and gives you prescriptive options for how to build something specific, while also giving you complete freedom to use your own imagination and do whatever you want. So Lego's comeback is one of the most, I think, striking because their turnaround has put them at the top of the world's most powerful brands, even replacing the mighty Ferrari. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah, which would, by the way, make a fun licensing opportunity, I think. But all of the characters exist within this framework of the Lego block architecture. They play on that instead of moving beyond it. And they kind of take the limitations of the Lego blocks and celebrate that and turn it into a positive of something that's simple and easy and compatible versus a limitation. And by doing that, they anchor everything from the movies to Legoland to whatever within our love of the brand, rather than trying to push us beyond what Lego really is into these other permutations that that are these adjacencies that don't really kind of keep us within the ecosystem of why we love Lego in the first place. It needs a foundation, Chad. That's what you're trying to say. It does. (laughs) It does. You know, we've talked at numerous episodes about how brands use or ignore their legacy, right? And Lego is a mega brand and their rebirth had to be based on honoring their history. And that's what they did. And that's been their foundation. And Jorgen, the CEO, maybe, I'll, I'll just call him by his first name and then I won't butcher his last name. (laughs) He's a father of four kids, and maybe that's why he got it, but he anchored Lego in its past, giving it a firm foundation to build the future. And David Robertson, in his book Brick by Brick, How Lego Rewrote the Rules of Innovation, says that he believes that Kirk, quote, a better model for innovation than Steve Jobs. Now that is a compliment. Wow. That's amazing. And it's really kind of interesting as we researched this episode and I thought back to some of the more recent experiences with Lego, like, for example, the wildly successful Lego movies. And I thought back to the story of the original Lego movie. Do you like the Lego movie? I loved the Lego movies. I thought they were super, super fun. I've seen that clips of it and it just didn't, it just didn't do it for me. Like, it's just, they all look the same and... Ugh. You gotta, you gotta watch the whole thing. The way they unfold the story is really good. Maybe the storyline is good, but it, it just didn't pull me in like I thought it would. Mm. Well, so the interesting thing about it is that when you watch the Lego movie, the first one, it really is kind of like a tongue-in-cheek Lego making fun of the reasons why Lego struggled. Mm. Because the plot line for the Lego movie is essentially that there's this, the dad, right? He becomes obsessed with the perfection of how to build the Legos and they have to be these complex systems and it has to be follow the instructions precisely. And that's kind of the direction that Lego took things with these really complex designers. And then in the Lego movie, they talk about the idea of like, 
becoming a master builder requires you to have imagination and flexibility and color outside the lines and not have to follow the instructions step by step. The way kids interact with Legos, basically, getting back to their target audience. Exactly. Lord Business. <laughs> See your friends. Oh, they're finished. My world is almost finished. The last thing I need to do is finish you. No, stop, please. If you do one more thing, I'm going to unleash my secret weapon. Your secret weapon? Yes. It's called the power of the special. That sounds dumb. All right. Here it comes. My secret weapon is this. What is that? Is it super small? I don't see anything. It's my hand. I want you to take it. You want me to take your hand off? No, I want you to join me. Look at all of these things that people built. You might see a mess. Exactly. And a bunch of weird, dorky stuff that ruined my perfectly good stuff. Okay. What I see are people inspired by each other and by you. People taking what you made and making something new out of it. You don't have to be the bad guy. You are the most talented, most interesting, and most extraordinary person in the universe. And you are capable of amazing things because you are the special. And so am I. And so is everyone. The prophecy is made up, but it's also true. It's about all of us. Right now, it's about you. And you still can change everything. And so it's this really brilliant like expression of the brand journey that Lego has been on for the past 30 years in going off course and getting too precious about what they're trying to accomplish and then having to go back to their essence and realize that it's for the love and it's for the imagination and the wonder of being able to express your imagination through the toys. And it's just so cool to me that they were able to articulate that into this amazing mass production movie that's entertainment based. I'll have to watch the whole thing. I recommend it. I recommend right. it. <laughs> so yeah, I think there's so many lessons to learn from the Lego story. Just because your brand is successful and even massive, doesn't mean you can ignore basic business theory, right? And we see this time and time again with big brands that they often struggle to maintain who they are and struggle to understand when they need to kind of burn things down and go back to basics. And you have to know what you're good at, right? You have to build on what you're good at first and foremost before kind of going off track and you kind of have to just remember who you are. And let your fans help find your purpose, right? Lego leaned hard into the super users and lovers of their brand. 
And they even started hiring them, trusting your customer to help you remember why you matter is really important and this really helped them, but it's also very hard to do. A lot of brands are very hesitant of handing over their brand equity to their users. But for something like Legos, it's definitely something that helped them and was a very smart move. So Nico, you just talked about how it's very difficult to do and- Well, it's easy to do. A lot of brands don't wanna do it because they don't trust their brand in the hands of their customers. Right, right, exactly. You don't want to relinquish control, right? <laughs> right? It's kind of this a little bit of a, a control freak kind of a, a leadership habit. And one of the stories that Jorgen tells about this comeback is he talks about how, to your point, once they got that information from their customers, and one of the big things that they learned and understood from their customers is the importance of the compatibility, they went back to the manufacturing facilities and they got rid of all their complex analytics and they put up whiteboards in the manufacturing facilities where they would write a few key metrics on the whiteboard green pen, red pen, you up or you down on these core metrics that had to do with compatibility of the pieces. It was all around everybody all the time. Everybody could see it. That's so smart. Yes. Everyone could see it. You couldn't escape it. And people would tell them, why is this stuff on whiteboards? Like we need to get this into an IT system and digital analytics and blah, blah, blah. And his response to them was, it will never be in an IT system. We're never going to go down that route because we'll lose focus on what the core things are because there's so many different distractions of things to dig into. At the end of the day, you can look on this whiteboard and there's two metrics and it's either green or it's red. And there's a really big power to that. Let me wrap up today's episode with a fun fact. In the 28th of January, 1958, the founder, Kirk Christensen, submitted the patent for Lego. <laughs> and that day, 28th of January, is International Lego Day. Oh, cool. Yeah. And if you go to the Guinness Book of Records, we will post this in the show notes, a lot of big events happen on this day, specifically trying to build the most lavish, outrageous statues and displays. And just to name a few, there was a Lego ship that was built that they used two and a half million blocks, nearly a life-size 18-deck ship that they built. Or the tallest tower was over half a million bricks. There's also the largest Lego sculpture, which was ever done, which was a replica of the London Tower Bridge. And they used over 5 million individual pieces. And the cool thing about that is it was actually sponsored by Land Rover. So it was like a branded campaign that they did. Wow. Which made the Guinness Book of Records, got a lot of mileage out of it. This is a really good example. You can actually see the Land Rover Discovery on the actual bridge built out of Lego. So big it was. <laughs> That's cool. So they just had a lot of fun with it. It's a very fun brand. And we'll throw that in the show notes as well so you guys can see all the mega sculptures that they've put together just with little bricks. Nice. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. 
Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.